Hello, friends. My name is Iris Josefina. I'm your host, and you are listening to the Planting Seeds podcast. On the Planting Seeds podcast, we explore how we can cultivate a more gentle relationship with our cyclical bodies, the earth, each other, and the world around us through using our senses, science, the subtle, and the sacred. On Planting Seeds, we talk about all those topics you've always wanted to talk about. We are shamelessly opening up the conversations that we all so desperately need to settle in our precious bodies and relate to each other in a more open, truthful, and empowered way. I'm so glad you're here today. So welcome everyone to a new episode of the Planting Seeds podcast. Today I have a very special guest. Her name is Hermine and we actually met I think in 2013 way back at a midwifery today conference in Blankenbergen, Belgium. And Hermine is an international attorney who has spent the last decade advancing human rights and maternal health care worldwide. Between 2012 and 2016, Hermine organized six international conferences on the topic of human rights in childbirth and partnered with national organizations on many advocacy campaigns to ensure respectful maternity care. Hermine is based in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, where her legal practice focuses on representing women who have experienced obstetric violence during childbirth and advocating for integration of midwives and doulas into maternity care. Welcome, Hermine. Thank you, Iris. Thank you for including me on your show. It's a real pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you for being here. So to start, as I mentioned already a little bit in your introduction, is that you are advocating against obstetric violence. Maybe you can start a little bit by explaining what that is so that people understand what we're talking about when we're going to focus a bit on that topic? Absolutely. So I, I really, I advocate for the human rights of pregnant and birthing women to be upheld and respected by all of the people and systems that they encounter throughout their reproductive health care. And that involves really advocating fundamentally for their right to autonomy, to be respected as the capable and competent person who gets to make all of the decisions about what's going to be done to their body and their baby, that nothing can be done to them without their permission and consent. And so you mentioned that that sort of advocating for that right, that right to sort of agency and ownership of our own bodies can translate into advocating against the phenomenon of obstetric violence. Mm -hmm. And obstetric violence as a phrase is a concept that was invented and introduced by South American women's groups who were advocating for women's rights to respect and dignity in maternal health care. And they came up with this phrase obstetric violence to describe what they were experiencing in many South American maternal health care systems. And the way that they defined it was the phenomenon of really being bullied, coerced, pressured, misinformed regarding medical decisions when they were in the vulnerable state of pregnancy and especially childbirth. And that the violence can manifest literally as violence performed on a woman's body if she is, for example, resisting an intervention that she does not believe is necessary 
or um, in a similar situation. But it can also involve psychological coercion and manipulation that can also have a traumatic impact on women following childbirth. So to advocate for women's rights in childbirth is to advocate against the violation of those rights. And, and what we call that can differ. We can call it obstetric violence. We can call it disrespect and abuse is another phrase that has been used for that phenomenon. And even the World Health Organization has called it the mistreatment of birthing women. So whatever we call it, it can leave women traumatized and debilitated, both physically and especially emotionally and psychologically, just at the moment when they really need to be as functional as possible because they have a newborn. So for this reason, this is the focus of my work, to try to make it so that the rights that exist in law are actually respected and upheld in when women are actually at the hospital or in any kind of system trying to have a baby. Thank you so much for explaining this. My pleasure. Why do you think that in so many systems, this very normal human act of respecting people while they birth is non-existent or not so much valued in so many systems? I mean, I work in birth, so I've seen it from very close by, and it has really blown my mind. Like, why is this not common sense? Like, why is this not something that is practiced? and is normal for people? Well, that's a wonderful question, Iris. And uh, the fundamental answer is is history. <laughs> and and uh, the ways in which history has not been resolved in labor and delivery, in maternal health care. And so, I mean, this question you ask, how could something like this occur when it's so natural and normal to treat each other with kindness and dignity and respect? And we could ask the same question about how could it have occurred that for so long women's rights have been violated in so many other kinds of ways? How could it have be the case that for so long women have been subjected to violence in their homes, for example, and the state was not willing or able to protect them from that violence? So this phenomenon of women's inequality is longstanding and complicated, obviously. But then when we get to why is this happening in labor and delivery, what we can say is basically that the expectation of how women are supposed to behave in childbirth is still really grounded in history and in a pre-feminist history. So in the last century, there have been many ways in which women's organizations and groups have challenged their historical inequality and their lack of rights, right? And their ability, for example, to decide whether and when to have a child. Women not very long ago didn't really have the ability to decide whether they would become mothers, when and how they would become mothers. And women have fought hard for that. Women until very recently did not have the ability to use their brains and bodies to choose the career and work that is the best manifestation of themselves and to make good money from that work the way that men can. That's something that we're still in the process of really trying to advocate for all over the world. And I mean, essentially, and, and this is a reason why I do this for my work as a lawyer, Childbirth is an arena where women really have not stood up for their rights in a meaningful way. And so what's happening in obstetric healthcare all over the world is that basically it's being managed according to the sort of medical culture of obstetrics. And the medical culture of obstetrics, it still has an old-fashioned pre-feminist concept of the female as someone who is fundamentally passive, fundamentally cooperative to the point of obedient and distrusts her own body to the point that she is willing to place the authority over that body outside herself. 
And to perceive women like that is in tension with the law, because what the law says, the law of informed consent basically exists in most, if not all, countries. And that law is, you know, it applies to both men and women, and it's really recognized as a human right or a constitutional right here in the United States. The right of informed consent and refusal in medical decision-making is grounded in a very fundamental human right of ownership over our bodies. That, you know, informed consent says that you own your body, and even though sometimes you might have to go to a doctor or a hospital for medical treatment, you don't lose your ownership over your body when you do that. And that the folks that you encounter in the hospital setting need to respect your ownership over your body. And even as they have the, you know, you go to them for their advice and for them to offer you their medical services and maybe even for them to perform those medical services for you, they have to do that in a way that respects your right to say yes or no Mm -hmm. about whatever it is that they're offering. That's what the law says is supposed to be happening. But in the culture of obstetrics, there's kind of an assumption that we don't have to do that for birthing women because the best thing we can do for birthing women is to just get the baby out mm-hmm. and to you know make the decisions for them. But that's not really a rational assumption when we look at the fact that rates of intervention vary as much as they do. So just the cesarean section rate, for example, varies extremely widely from obstetric practice to practice. Here in the United States, the range I think is from 7 to 70% C-section rates. And the studies show that those differences in C-section rates are not about well, this practice has more healthy women than that, and so they, they need C-sections less or more. It's not about the women at all. It's about the preference of the providers. Mm-hmm. So some practices, they are more quick to do C-section, more quick to do this intervention, sometimes slower. And that can be okay for different providers to have a different perspective on when to intervene. But if you're the patient going through those systems, the only way for you to navigate the fact that one doctor might say you need a C-section and one might say you don't is for you to be able to integrate the information and make a decision. When the system assumes that you're going to obey whoever is standing in front of you, you're not in a very safe position because the chances are significant that you will be subjected to an intervention and maybe even a surgery that you don't need and that imposes real risks on you and your baby and your future babies. So for these kinds of reasons, women need to be able to make the decisions about their care, but there's sort of a pre-feminist cultural assumption that they're not going to do that. And that's only going to change when the women themselves stand up and say, no, we actually want our legal rights respected in this space. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. I'm also wondering, how do you envision for this knowledge to get to the women who need to know it? I mean, I guess knowledge number one would be what are our rights? And for women to know, for example, that they have the right to ask questions, get information, say no, say yes. So just to know their rights. And I mean, ideally, childbirth would be taught with sex education in high school and grade school so that prior to becoming pregnant, um, women are, are very clear that their agency and autonomy over their bodies extends all through their life, all of the time, including when they're pregnant. And to the extent that that has not occurred in our cultures, really, it's about things like what you're doing here. It's just word of mouth in my work, you know, around my conferences and running this nonprofit, Human Rights and Childbirth, explored the possibility of Know Your Rights campaigns. And that is definitely something that can be done on the national level, national groups, women's groups, for example, can work with lawyers to write up know your rights documents in the local language and to make those available for women. And you can ideally work with government, you know, ideally 
find somebody in the government who understands that these rights exist and see if they would be willing to sponsor the distribution of these materials and make sure that they're in places where women can see them, like hospital settings. So really, it's just trying to put the information out there is sort of all we can do, that and advocating for the rights. Yeah, and that nonprofit that you helped to create, Human Rights and Childbirth, is that an organization that works globally, or is it only focusing on like the laws of the United States, or how, how is that made up? Well, it's no longer operating the way that I created it. I did found it in 2012 and 13 and ran it until the beginning of 2017. And during that time, what I was trying to do was build the global network of lawyers and groups that were doing work in this area. To my knowledge, that's no longer operational. So I think there are other organizations that are really working at the local level, at the national levels. Birthrights in the UK continues to, I think, distribute information on British law, the Geburtenbeweging. I'm not sure the extent to which they're active in the Netherlands. I mean, the fact is that there are women's groups that in a way come and go and have different chapters of activity depending on the individuals, because this is all very grassroots. I was living in the Netherlands from 2007 to 2012. And in around 2010, My own midwife got complaints against her license filed by the doctors at the hospital because she mm. was supporting women in the choice to have their um, breach and twins babies outside the hospital. And they made those choices because the options that were available to them inside the hospital for the birth of those babies did not feel safe to them. And so at that time, I realized, geez, my midwife needs a lawyer. She needs a Dutch lawyer who understands the fundamental human rights issues that are at stake in this case, namely the human rights of the women to choose where and with whom they're going to have their baby. And that was my motivation to organize my first international conference. And then um, what I discovered through that work and also through, really, it was through the creation of that movie, Freedom for Birth, that happened later that year in 2012. And then that was screened, I think, a thousand places that September globally. And what came out of those thousand screenings, I, you know, I started to hear from women's groups in different countries around the world. And it became clear that these groups exist everywhere. They're just in living rooms. You know what I mean? They're like just they're meeting at birth centers. They're doulas, they're moms, they're midwives. There are a dozen people, they're 20 people, they're six people who get it who get what's going wrong in their maternal health system and are committed to addressing it, but that those folks need support and need for it to be recognized that their work is really international human rights work. It's not just that they're complaining about wanting, you know, special treatment or something like that in mm -hmm. their maternal health system. And so for five years, my work was really to try to build strength, build and strengthen the networks of people around the world that were doing this work. And that's evolved for me personally into just direct legal advocacy. Instead of working sort of to organize a political organization, other groups and try to find those lawyers, the best thing that I can do with my time now is really to advocate case by case. That and, you know, to some extent, public speaking on these issues. And so internationally, Let's see, White Ribbon Alliance is a global organization that is committed to addressing, you know, advancing respectful maternity care. But really the advocacy that needs to happen is really at the local level because it's the local groups that understand the problems that are being faced in their maternal health system and what is needed to address them. But it's also helpful for those groups to know that they are not alone and that the problems they're facing in their system exist in different ways in basically all systems.
we have a problem in all systems as, as evident, even in the Netherlands, right, which is a very excellent maternal health system. Mm-hmm. When my midwife got complaints against her license for doing twins and breaches, I thought, wow, you know, I thought I really had a choice to give birth at home in this country, the Netherlands. But it turns out I was allowed and she's not allowed. Mm. And that shows that even here in the Netherlands, we have the same problem as in the United States and other countries, confusion over who is allowing who to do what when it comes to pregnant women's bodies. Nobody gets to allow me to do anything. You know, they can allow me into their space, you know, and, and that's one of the tricky things about hospital spaces. They do control and own the space and they're not my slave. I can't tell a doctor that they have to do something for me that's outside of, you know, the normal standard of care for the service that they're supposed to be offering. But nobody gets to tell me that I have to do anything either because um, I own this body. Yeah, so my work and the advocacy of other individuals and groups worldwide continues to be focused on that right to decision-making, both inside the hospital setting and um, the right to access midwifery care and the support of doulas in any setting. How does that work manifest to help people to have access to midwives and doulas? The way that it manifests is protecting the right of midwives and doulas to work and to provide the services that women are asking them for. Because what we have seen, again, historically with midwives, and doulas are a newer phenomenon, so we'll get to them in a second. But with midwives is that women want midwives, but that when uh, medical obstetrics sort of became involved with childbirth and doctors started to do not only cases where there was actual need for medical intervention, but to manage normal, healthy childbirth, there has been, to different extents, the marginalization of midwives in all kinds of maternal health systems around the world. So in the United States, what that meant was that about 100 years ago in the early 1900s, when doctors sort of took over childbirth, the American Medical Association organized very effectively to eliminate midwives through law and with the support of the state, because these were men with power. The doctors were men with power who could talk to their friends, the other men in government. And between those men, it was all very obvious that these midwives are dangerous and ignorant, and that the safest thing we can do for those little ladies is to protect them against these dangerous midwives. And so midwives went away in the United States for over 50 years. There were basically were no midwives. So there were only doctors and nurses doing childbirth. And it was only in the 1970s that the hippie movement started to reinvent midwifery and bring it back out of the dirt that it was buried in. And around Europe, in a way, what you can say is that the status of midwifery and ultimately the status of birthing women themselves reflects the status of women in each nation generally. So in the nations where women's rights are strongest, we see the strongest midwifery profession, right? Mm. And where the midwives are, they're assumed as the first line of care. So in the Netherlands, there's an assumption that midwives have an important role in the maternal health system and that it's perfectly reasonable and normal and appropriate for healthy, low-risk women to start their care with midwives um, and to save the doctors for the events that they're actually needed. Around Europe, as you go, for example, closer to the Mediterranean, where there's a stronger culture of patriarchy and machismo, the role of midwives is more marginalized. They look more like labor and delivery nurses, as in the United States, for example, in Greece, um, in parts in, of Italy, where the midwives aren't actually allowed to deliver the baby. Mm-hmm. They're only really allowed to call in the doctor at the last moment to actually do whatever is being done while that baby comes out of that woman's body. One very important thing that it involves is advocating for midwives' scope of practice, right? So it's make, it's protecting midwives' ability to perform the services that they are trained, skilled, 
and capable of performing. So that is that they can attend women in childbirth at all, right? Including attend them in the setting of their choice outside the hospital at home or in a birth center. It's protecting their scope of practice, their ability to serve women who they have the ability to serve. And so that, for example, in some countries and states, they try to say that midwives can't attend women who have a prior cesarean section. Mm. The risk of uterine rupture on the uterine scar requires increased monitoring, but the midwifery model of care provides increased monitoring relative to the medical model of care. As long as we have smooth integration, there's no reason meaning the ability to transfer care from a midwife to a surgical team in the event that surgery becomes necessary during childbirth. There's no reason at all why a midwife shouldn't be able to support a woman who has had a prior cesarean section. And for the women themselves, it's imperative that they can access a midwife if they have a prior cesarean section, if they want to have a vaginal birth with the next birth, because the midwife is the person with the most skills to support a normal physiological birth and provides the woman with the highest likelihood that she's going to have a vaginal birth rather than a surgical delivery. So it's protecting their scope of practice. It's protecting their legal security. You know, what is their legal status in that nation? Are they licensed? In some places, midwives aren't licensed. They're essentially criminals. And so that's an issue, right? It's advocating for their right to get paid, right? Is the profession of midwifery sustainable in a way that makes it possible for women to be midwives long-term, right? Because the best midwives, of course, are the ones with the most years under their belts Mm -hmm. and have the most intuition to draw on based on their experiences. But legal harassment and not getting paid can drive midwives back out of the profession so that there's only young midwives who are trying out for a few years before they realize that it's not sustainable. And it's advocating for integration, right? So if midwives exist outside the hospital, what does integration look like to make it actually safe to access their choices? I mean, their, their services. I moved to the Netherlands to have both of my babies there. Hmm. I mean, I didn't move there to have my babies. I moved there for other reasons, but I was pregnant when I did. And when I did, I was able to explore and I found myself in this healthcare system in which healthy women give birth at home with midwives, in which that's a totally normal choice. And what that meant, because it was a normal choice, it was treated as normal by the system and it was integrated in a way that made it a safe choice Mm -hmm. so that I knew prenatally that my midwife could exchange labs and tests and information with the hospital that was my local hospital so that if I had to go to the hospital, Everybody, both the midwife and the hospital had my records. Everybody could easily look up and see what's going on with my case. And really there would be coordinated care. Mm -hmm. That's essential for safety. I knew that if I had to transfer, if anything were to come up during the birth with me or after the birth for my baby, and we had to call for an ambulance, I knew that if the ambulance guys got there, they would know what a midwife is. They would treat this like a normal situation. Okay, this is a, a birth transfer. We know what to do. We know how to resuscitate a neonate. Or if we don't know how to resuscitate a neonate, we know that this midwife does know how. So we're going to support and respect her ability to do that till we get that baby transferred. Those are the kinds of things that make home birth safe. I knew that if I had to go to the hospital, I would be treated with respect by the people when I got there. And so would my midwife. They would listen to her explain what was going on clinically. And that would enable them to have smooth continuity of care to make sure that my medical needs or the needs of my baby got addressed. All that is necessary for safety, for the safety of midwifery care. But there are many systems in which that is withheld Mm -hmm. from midwifery care for reasons that cause death for women and babies, cause death. Lack of integration causes death. I work on those cases back here in the United States. 
So I eventually moved back from Holland to Oregon, right? Within the United States, Oregon is considered to be a place where there's midwives. Mm -hmm. Because compared to the rest of the United States, where midwives are actually criminals in many states, here in Oregon, they're licensed and they are able to do vaginal birth after cesarean outside the hospital, et cetera. But having given birth in an integrated system, I was able to look at this one and see how very poorly integrated it actually is. Mm. Midwives are not fairly paid here at all. They are highly insecure legally, very vulnerable, and most importantly, integration is not at all assured or secure. So the state has licensed midwives and allowed them to exist, but the state has not taken any steps to require hospitals to receive those midwives in a way that doesn't kill the women who chose the midwife care. So I work on the cases where the EMT comes into the birth center and body checks the midwife off the baby that she's resuscitating. You know, we're taken over now with arrogance and disrespect toward the midwife. And then those EMTs, those are our ambulance brothers, stand over that baby having no idea what to do, looking at each other like, what do we do here? Mm. Well, the baby dies. And then the baby dies because the resuscitation was stopped because these guys don't know what they're doing. And who do they blame? They blame the midwife. This is what it looks like in the United States. So advocating for midwives means defending them. And it means actively advocating for demanding integration both from the hospital people that can withhold it by putting a home birth transfer into a room and leaving her there for four hours because they think she doesn't care if her baby dies, obviously, because she chose to give birth at home. Those kinds of things are said and occur. And it means advocating for and protecting the women themselves who made the choice for midwifery care. So it looks like a lot of things, both actively advocating for their right to exist and get paid and defending them when they are attacked. And for doulas, it means advocating for their right to be present, for respect and recognition for their role in the birth room. And it really actually right now what advocating for doula means is it means making sure that as the doula comes to be recognized as a, quote, healthcare professional, which is happening in some spaces, that that does not occur in a way that restricts the doula's ability to serve the woman. Mm -hmm. Because that is the risk of any kind of recognition or regulation of the doula. I would say that actually any kind of legal regulation of the doula is totally inappropriate because there's no service that a doula provides that is healthcare that should need regulation. The doula's role is to support the woman. We don't want state interfering with that. So I think doulas are in a funny position because on the one hand, they want recognition and, and they would even like to be paid. And more recognition means that they can. there's more avenues for payment. Maybe they could get health insurance payment. But the question is, can they access that recognition and legitimacy from the system itself without giving up their um, liberty and their ability to actually serve the woman on the woman's terms without having anybody else say things like, you're not allowed to inform the woman that she has more options than the ones we're telling her about. <laughs> mm. So that's the sort of thing that's, you know, doulas luckily are not really being sued. There have been some doulas attacked, but for the most part, defending doulas is not really a need right now. It's really just advocating for their right to exist and to do their job. We're seeing that happening here on Malta, because doulas are not a profession that is known, like people don't know what a doula is. So right now our job here is to make people aware about one, doulas exist, two, this is what they do, and then gaining people's trust to make them see that for some women, it could actually be very helpful to have a doula present at their birth, especially if they are expats or people who are not having any family here and who are for all women come on 
for all women, it's helpful to have a doula there. I can't think of a woman who doesn't need a doula there unless she's at home with her beloved midwife and her beloved midwife team who she knows loves her and with whom she feels completely relaxed and safe. She needs a doula, Mm. (laughs) right? It's not some special thing to need a doula. The question is, who's supporting you if your doula isn't, right? A woman needs to be supported through childbirth, unless she's a very, very one in a hundred thousand woman who really is better off alone during childbirth and doesn't want anybody there. Mm. Most women are going to open up more and relax more if they have some loving, warm female support that's looking at them and saying, girl, you got this. You're doing amazing. (laughs) This is all normal. You know, it's like, oh, okay. Oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. But she says I'm doing normal, huh? And it's very hard for most men to be in that role. What do they know? (laughs) They're just surviving her experience as well and nervous about their baby or whatever. It might have been in the past that labor and delivery nurses used to do that. I doubt it, honestly. (laughs) But we know they're not doing it now. The hospitals, I mean, I don't know about Malta, but here in the United States, they're too understaffed. They have too many responsibilities on that ward Mm -hmm. to be able to rub her shoulders or let her know, girl, you got this, you know? So if there's no nurse going there, then that means she's got nobody. And we've got plenty of studies to show the impact on intervention rates of a doula being present. We know that having a doula present, mm-hmm. and another way to put that, it, it not decreases intervention, but a more accurate way to put that is it massively increases her likelihood of having a normal vaginal birth, of coming out of this birth with minimum physical harm to herself, minimum physical harm to herself, minimum physical harm to herself. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> what we should be talking about and emotional harm to herself, like as healthy and well as possible. Our studies show that doulas make that happen. A tricky thing here is that would mean that it's in hospitals interests to bring in doulas, right? Because you're going to have the healthiest outcome unless that hospital makes monies from C-sections, which mm. is something we can circle back to in a second. That depends on the money-making structure of the hospital. But if the hospital has an incentive in smooth, easy births for the patients who come through there, then that hospital has an incentive in doulas or midwives that could provide the same thing. And some hospitals, they're actually hiring doulas so that they don't have to hire midwives because doulas are cheaper. So that that's a kind of a problem because it's almost like doulas can be kind of restricted midwives. Mm. You know, you get to support the woman, you know what's going on here with the birth, but you don't get to catch the baby and you must call in the doctor or the nurse to do all the medical stuff, you know? And so that's also something that as doula organizations will have to navigate. They should always be in partnership with their local midwives because what we don't want is like doulas versus midwives, right? Being mm-hmm. set up against each other. They're all on the same team and it, it's easy to exploit them against each other. And that's going to weaken both of them. But anyways, in sum, everybody needs a doula and everybody in Malta definitely needs a doula. <laughs> What's your C-section rate there again? It's very high. I don't know the exact number. Over 50%? Probably. I think 53. And again, what you have in Malta, like in Greece, like in so many settings, is that the C-section rates are profit-based. You know what I mean? So that you see different C-section rates in the for-profit hospitals versus the not-for-profit hospitals. Where there is a financial incentive to cut the baby out of women, they're doing it. They're doing it. Even though it increases her risk of death by three to four times, increases her baby's risk of death by three to four times, and creates significant risk of death for her downstream babies and her. It increases her risk of dying in childbirth. If this woman's planning on having more than two babies, you've now created a significant risk that this woman's going to die in childbirth later. Mm. For money, for money, that decision was made. I would call that corruption. Basically, the only reason a woman wouldn't need a doula in Malta is if she doesn't care at all, if she gets that kind of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she doesn't care at all if she's if she's in that 53% number who gets the mm-hmm. unnecessary C-section. And she doesn't care at all 
you know, if she doesn't plan to have more babies, so she's not concerned with miscarriage in her future pregnancy or placental accreta or anything like that. Maybe that woman doesn't need a doula. It sounds pretty creepy if you put it like that. I mean, I know it, but hearing it from a lawyer's mouth, an attorney's mouth, it's, yeah. Thank you for sharing though. Why? Talk to me a little more about how it sounds creepy. And like, you know, just the discomfort of really exposing and talking completely openly about what we're looking at in maternal health care. The creepy thing for me is that people have no idea. The systems behind birthing babies are so unknown. Right. They're so unknown. Yeah. And people just blindly walk into the system believing it is there to support them and help them. Yeah. Well, that is often not the case. Exactly. And what's wild is that it's the case that the system is not serving women and babies and really has not been, most systems have not been organized around the actual needs of birthing women and their newborns. And that's true, even though we're not saying anybody's a bad person here. Mm -hmm. Even though every person operating within that system can have entered it in good faith with the best of intentions, there's no one bad sinister person here who's like, ha ha ha, let's cut all the babies out, you know, and make a profit. And yet that is in fact what's happening. This is what unconscious bias looks like. You know what I mean? Unconscious mm -hmm. bias and sort of our unconscious prejudices and assumptions can lead us to do things that cause harm without our awareness. And so the studies are clear worldwide that the profit margin is what is driving the C-section pandemic globally, that it's profit. And that's true just because we're humans. And it's not just profit, it's actually time convenience incentives as well. That's what the studies show. It's not liability fear, that's the excuse, right? Doctors say, well, fear of liability makes us do this, but that's been thoroughly studied by law and economics scholars. And they've proven that it's actually not fear of liability that's driving the C-section pandemic. It's perverse financial incentives and time convenience incentives. It's just easier for the providers as well as more profitable mm -hmm. to do the C-section. And that's true for hospitals as well as doctors. The hospitals are the ones with the actual financial incentive to keep the women there for a few days following a surgery because if the hospital is being paid from the outside, if it's receiving facility fee money from insurers, for example, it's making more money for imposing more care on this woman. And so the hospital's financial incentives can then cause it to impose standards of care on the doctors working there that then cause the doctors to give more C-sections, not because they're going to make more money, but because of the, just the policies through you know, which they're being allowed by this hospital to provide the services. And so in those situations, for the doctors, their individual incentive might be more time convenience. And most of the time, those incentives are probably operating completely at the unconscious level. But what's manifesting on the conscious level is just a feeling like, well, why not? This is a perfectly reasonable, you know, you've been here 12 hours, you know what I mean? Like, why shouldn't you have a C-section? It's just another way to give birth, for example. It's painful to talk about it. It's painful to talk about it, but it's also good to talk about it. And I think right. a lot of the people who are listening are maybe not aware of this. And mm. I also want to recognize that for the people who are listening, this might stir up some things, especially if you have been in situations where you gave birth, especially if you are pregnant right now and maybe are planning to, you know, move through by being supported in the system. Mm -hmm. So I also want to take a moment to recognize that all of the things that we're talking about are potential triggers for people. Absolutely. Because it is a difficult topic and because we don't talk about this so often and because mm -hmm. the statistics that you're talking about, the research that you're talking about, 
is not very accessible for people and it's not very much talked about and especially not in the settings where we receive care. Mm -hmm. People don't talk about the numbers of the research at all. It's true. And Iris, you know, I have written some things that centralized that research. So I'll share that with you to publish with this podcast. That's great. And people can then through that find some studies. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with me. You're so welcome. Because I believe this should reach so many people, all the people. <laughs> You're so welcome. And, I, you know, I think before we end, let's just talk for a moment about what doulas can do to protect their clients, you know, when you're actually mm -hmm. working with them. Do you want to talk about that? Because really what that is about is like boundary holding and supporting the woman to be able to hold her own boundaries around what is okay and not okay with her as she's going through this very vulnerable process of birthing her child. And doulas are in a really unique and special position to be able to shift these dynamics that are occurring in labor and delivery because they're not a healthcare professional, you know, that in the sense that they're not the doctor or the midwife who's focusing on what's the blood pressure, what's the heart rate, etc. They're not in the family, so they don't have the personal pressure of this baby's coming and all the things that it means for the family. And they can often work in multiple settings, different hospitals, they can work at birth centers or at home. So unlike the home birth midwife who only ever sees a home birth or the doctor in the hospital or the midwife in the hospital, whoever only ever sees that, the doula can be in a position to really see how is this shaking out in all of the different settings of my community? You know, mm -hmm. how are women being cared for? And that information is invaluable, both in your ability to serve individual clients and then when you step back especially if you organize as a group of doulas to really do some advocacy for how we can improve the way women are being treated generally in our system. But when you go in individually, one-on-one -on -one with that woman, the question is, how can you protect her rights? Or say, you started this call by asking about obstetric violence, you know, and this phenomenon of, you know, what, is, what can a doula do about that? And, and also, what can she do so that she herself is not traumatized by witnessing obstetric mm. violence that she feels powerless to prevent, you know? which is often what happens with doulas mm -hmm. because their role is not recognized. It is not clear for them what they can do to prevent bad things that are happening right in front of their eyes and whether they can do anything. So I think that having talked with lots of doulas about this, what I have come to my, my counsel or advice or thoughts and that I can offer you to evolve yourself as you think is wisest for you is that the best way that a doula is going to be able to do anything, if that is your desire to maybe help prevent the trauma that comes from violence, but in a way that is also safe for you, is first of all, to talk with your client before the birth about what she is looking for from you. And that includes around her right of informed consent. So some women, they just want their doula there. They're not looking for an advocate, you know, and I think this is actually the minority of women, but it is some women. They're not looking for an advocate. They don't mind if they have an epidural or a C-section or whatever happens with the birth. They would just like to have some companionship, mm -hmm. maybe a back rub, maybe some hair combing, you know, and that's great. <laughs> that's fine. And you can be clear with her that that's what she wants and that her right of informed consent there, she's, if her plan is to just go along with whatever they say, then she doesn't need you to interfere around that. But I mean, maybe she still wants to be treated kindly and maybe she wants to know that if there's somebody, you know, maybe she does have some needs, maybe she doesn't. If she doesn't, she doesn't, right? But part of what you can ask her is, is this something that's important to you, your right of decision-making? And is it important to you that before people do things to you, they look you in your eyes, they tell you what they're going to do, or, you know, not what they're going to do because they don't get to do it unless you say yes. They tell you what they're perceiving. Mm -hmm. This is what informed consent should look like. The doctor or midwife should come into the woman and say, so 
this is your symptoms. You know, it's been X hours, your, your dilation, blah, blah, your fluid, blah, blah. This is what we perceive your clinical condition to be. This is our diagnosis of your clinical condition right now. And here are our options for addressing your clinical condition. We could do this. We could do that. We could add some Pitocin. We could go to a C-section. We could do nothing. They should always include the option of doing nothing mm-hmm. and then explain the risks and the benefits of each of those options, including the option of doing nothing. And then after the woman is accurately informed regarding all of her options and their essential risks and benefits, they don't have to go in every risk that exists, right? They don't have to be an encyclopedia, but the essential risks of each of these options, then the provider can give their advice. This is what I think you should do or not. They don't have to give advice. They can just give the information. But if they think one is would be much safer or whatever than the other, they can give that advice. And then the, they have to support the person to make that decision. They have to answer all the questions of the patient. They have to listen to them. They need to not belittle them or coerce them or bully them in that conversation. And then they need to support that patient's decision. Yes or no, or I want this, but not that. Or this is what I think is best for me. That's what it should look like, right? Mm-hmm. But as we know, the way it often looks is they come in and they say, this is what we're going to do now. And sometimes they say, now sign here. <laughs> Or she asks questions and she's not really given clear, straight, accurate answers to her questions. If the woman wants real informed consent in the way that I just described to you and would like her doula to help protect her right to those things, then you guys can talk about that in advance, right? And you can get clear with your client, you know, especially because often a client hires a doula because it's her second birth. And in her first birth, she was bullied and she didn't end up with trauma. And now she wants someone there to help prevent this from happening again. If that's part of what your client wants, then you can really get clear with her about that in advance. And if that's part of what she wants, then first of all, you and she should talk about what comes up when you imagine saying no. Because I think this is actually the trickiest thing for us as women, for the doula and for the woman, to confront the way in which we have been socialized to cooperate, Mm -hmm. to get along, to hold together the social fabric by not saying no. Women are not encouraged to say no. Girls are not encouraged to say no or to fight or to stand up for themselves. We don't want to do that, especially when we're having a baby, right? For many women, just the idea of saying no in a much lower stakes situation than childbirth can make their heart pound, can make them shake. You know what I mean? So to do some work prenatally around what happens when you imagine saying no for both the doula and the woman. And you explore together when you imagine the doula saying, wait a second, doctor, she said no episiotomy. Why are you picking up those scissors? You have to talk to her first. Can the woman imagine having that doula's back and saying, that's right, doctor, I did say I have not given you permission. I mean, is the woman going to say, oh, I'm sorry, doctor, about my doula being so rude. Whatever you want to do is just fine, doctor. If the woman does that, and I've heard of stories where they do that, the doula is completely exposed for having stood up for the woman. And now the doula is vulnerable for, it's like, you know, as if she came out of left field, she cannot hold a boundary for the woman. If the woman cannot ultimately hold the boundary for herself Mm -hmm. and have the doula's back and supporting her. So I would say prenatally talk that through. And if you're both ready and willing and able to do that, to go in there and be willing to hold a boundary, then at the beginning of the labor, when the doctors and nurses first walk into that room, the midwives or whoever, the woman should say to them, this is my doula, Iris. Part of Iris's job for me here today is going to be to protect my right of informed consent. And what that means is that I'm really counting on Iris to make sure that before anything is done, before anything's put in my IV, before an IV is put in my arm, before anything happens, that whoever wants to do that takes the time to look me in my eyes, tell me what they are suggesting, tell me why they're suggesting it, tell me what my other options are. 
answer all my questions, and then listen to whether I say yes. That's just her role is to look out for that. So if you hear her voice, it will be because she's looking out for my right of informed consent. And if the woman herself can set that stage for the doula at the beginning, Mm -hmm. then when the doula speaks up to say, wait a second, did you ask her? Nobody's going to act like the doula is coming out of left field or interfering. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. She will not feel so vulnerable because everybody should expect that that is her role in the room is to look out for that. And if that's languaged carefully by everybody, then it can be, we know you're all busy and you might forget to look me in the eyes. So you'll understand that's just her role to remind you that you have to do that. And then that doula will feel safer to do that. So that's my counsel to share with you and your clients and your sister doulas about how you can prepare to do this work of holding boundaries for yourselves and your clients in a way that is safe for you as well as them. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of that. I notice it moves a lot inside of me because I've been at births where I have felt, I mean, you know, we've talked about this. I've been at births where I felt that I couldn't support my client fully Mm -hmm. as I wanted because... We got into settings where there was no time to set the stage like that. Yes. So it's a really great reminder. Yes. You saying this. So thank you for that. Yes. Because even if it's a real new client, you never met her before today, take five minutes when they leave the room or 15 minutes to talk through what's coming up for her and offer her how you can support and tell her what you need from her to be safe to do that, which is to know she has your back. You have her back. She has your back. And then you're there together strong. I think that's a beautiful vision, beautiful imagery indeed, to end with. And we can't even expand. It's like, that's L&D. That's the actual room where the birth happens. But our work together is that outside of that, bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, mm-hmm. we as women together, you and I together, holding hands to have each other's backs <laughs> and to advocate for the rights of all women all of us together. I really wish this light of this podcast will reach a lot of people. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and for being here today. My great pleasure, Iris. Thank you for your perseverance and your commitment to this work year in and year out. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please, please, please share it with others, with your friends, with your family, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or a review on all the platforms. To catch all the latest news from me, you can follow at the Planting Seeds Podcast on Instagram or at Cycle Seeds on Instagram, or you can go to my website, www.cycleseeds.com. Thank you again so much and I'll see you next time.